To the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 105 and 106, which begin with Helen, Enola, and the Mariner hanging out on the starboard outrigger, and end with the Deacon making a simple request for sharks. We kick off this week's episode with the Mariner extending the lounge chair on the outrigger. I'm not sure if I necessarily like the construction of this chair, because while it does fold flat, when you bring it up, that top section is held in place by the tension of a line that goes from the seat back to the seat bottom. Yeah, and the maneuver that they're about to do with this chair does, I think, call into question the structural integrity of the chair. It's putting a lot of faith in that cable. It really is, because there's a lot of forces that are going on, that are all focusing on that chair and on that cable. I guess when you're sitting in it, you only need the bottom portion folded up, and that is held in place with a hinge. Sure, great, fine. The only instance in which you would have that top portion folded up and held in place with a wire is not so much when you're sitting in it, so the line is interfering where your arm is, you'd be standing up leaning on it. And therefore, the line would be down by your midsection there, so it wouldn't be as in the way. Yeah. I'm just looking at it from a comfort point of view. Right. And it's so narrow. It is very narrow. It really does seem quite improbable that this would work. Honestly, it really reminds me of a lot of lounge chairs that I had when I was younger that had a very, not complicated style of hinge, but a very finicky style of hinge maybe it's just seeing this is bringing back those memories of futzing around with these chairs and that's what really throws me off i think i know the style of chair that you're thinking of yeah it was a trifold Mm -hmm. it was almost pvc-esque like like stripping exactly the frame was in three parts the bottom section was a square and then the two ones on either side had a rounded square top to them yeah the hinge was finicky one thing is for sure those type of chairs would never be able to stand up to the oh let's just say rigorous use that these chairs are about to undergo because as the exposition smoker as i've named him (laughs) shouts out watch it he's clearing the net i have to wonder as we're watching this movie Is it immediately obvious what the Mariner is trying to do by having everybody run to one side of the boat? Or do we need this smoker to tell everybody what's going on? I think we do not need this smoker to tell everyone what's going on because it may not be immediately obvious what the Mariner is attempting to do. But the process of watching this unfold, this is one of the iconic moments of this movie, especially the image of... Kevin Costner flying out sideways. Yes. You hear Waterworld 
that's one of the images you think about. So watching this unfold, it's quite a feat. It doesn't seem like it should work. In real life, I'm not sure if it would work or not. The principles are good in it. Like putting enough pressure with weight and leverage on one side to lift the other side up. Great scientific principles. I'm just not sure that there is enough leverage to lift up that boat. Yeah. Anywho, it's a beautiful sequence of events. And I don't think that it was required to have that clarification from the exposition smoker. I think that this line was thrown in here, possibly in the TV edit, as a way to catch people's attention when they're watching it on the television. Because when you're watching in a theater, it's dark. The only thing you can see is the screen. So if you're watching a theatrical cut, you may not need someone to yell out, oh, hey, this is exactly what is about to happen. But if you've got it in a TV edit, now I'm not saying one way or the other, this was in, this was not in. But if you're showing something on network television, people are going to be sitting on the couch, reading a newspaper, doing a puzzle, playing with toys on the floor. If you have this goal of having people pay attention to your movie and they are just listening to it and they hear someone yell, watch it, he's clearing the net, they're going to look because someone just yelled, watch it. It is very much an audio cue to something that's going on that has not really any other audio cues. The Mariner is yelling things at Helen, and Helen is yelling things back at the Mariner, but they're not very informative as to what's going on. It's a lot of barking. Yeah, but if you have to add in, hey, look, something cool is happening, literally a character saying, hey, look, something cool is happening. To make sure that your cool thing is seen and appreciated, you have failed. I think that is an admission that your movie is not captivating. <laughs> that you've reached a point in the movie where people can be spacing out and not paying attention because it's yes. not enthralling. Yes. This movie, <laughs> it's one of its problems is that it has great action scenes. Like, this scene is just fantastic. It's so good. Everything about it is just wonderful. But Rick... We've been through so much to get here. Yes, we have. It has been 105 minutes. And we are technically halfway through this movie, but not very much past that point. Yeah. The price we have to pay to get to great action scenes is quite high with this movie. <laughs> I'm willing to pay a price. I'm willing to slog through plot development because I'm not necessarily an action movie type of girl. I'm into plot development. Cool. Thank you. Please. But this movie, the price is too high for a great payoff. <laughs> but what a payoff it is. Oh my goodness. When Kevin Costner, as the Mariner, realizes that the weight has not shifted enough off the side of the boat and so he raises himself up off of that chair, holding himself straight out by both arms. I watched this scene so carefully because for some reason I can't believe that this is actually Kevin Costner, but this sort of maneuver is something you can train for. There's also, I believe, some optical illusion going on here. The boat is already leaning. It may not be leaning enough yet. But it's already leaning, and it's hard to see that in that shot. And the camera is tilted a bit. But 
I still don't think the camera is giving us a good idea of how tilted the boat already is. So yes, Kevin Costner is holding himself out like that, but a lot of that is physics doing some of the work for him. Yeah. I think the camera angle should have been more severe. Of course, the boat isn't actually going to do that with people on it. That's just not safe. When they do get the shots of the boat lifting up on one side, those are professional sailors doing that. That is a stunt crew doing that. That is not Kevin Costner and Dream Triple Horn and Tina Majorino on that boat. So in this shot, production-wise, I think it is Kevin Costner just doing it. But I don't think it's the Mariner doing it. Okay. Kevin Costner is holding himself out sideways all by himself. The Mariner is not. Could you expand on that just a little bit, though? Because I'm having trouble following that. Okay. The Mariner, the character, that boat is already leaning. Okay. We just can't see it because the camera isn't allowing us to see it. Okay. Okay. So the Mariner has the angle help and the physics help to hold himself out like that. So the way you're explaining it, he's not so much holding himself out horizontally. He is holding himself at more of a shallow angle. Yes. I still think it's impressive, though, because he is pulling with one arm and pressing out with the other. And that's still an impressive feat. It's not Olympic, but it does remind me of like the separated rings, that sort of muscle discipline to be able yeah. to hold yourself up. Frankly, I'm not terribly impressed by the Mariner. I am impressed by Kevin Costner because Kevin Costner does not have physics helping him out here. He is doing it all by himself. Okay, having never attempted this, I cannot definitively say how much easier it would be to hold yourself at an angle versus straight out. All I can be is impressed by what I'm looking at on the screen. And we cut back to the trading post to see the Deacon and the Nord, and they're standing there watching what is happening, and they appear to be a bit surprised by what they're looking at. In my notes, I wrote, I wonder if the Deacon and the Nord are wondering if Kevin Costner is really holding himself up like this, or maybe if it's a stunt double. <laughs> we see so much of the Mariner's face that I feel like it's actually Kevin Costner doing it. I do think it actually is Kevin Costner doing that. I really hate to keep picking at it, but it's just not as impressive as the editing makes it look. <laughs> the editor helped him a lot, okay. which is the editor's job. Exactly. So I want to duck into the book real quick because the Mariner does something a little different in the book. He doesn't hold himself out as we've been talking about. The book says he knew what to do. Port side, he shouted to the woman as he loped to the port side bow. Now! He untied the hinged ladder and heaved it out onto the surface of the water, as if the sea were a wall he intended to climb. What are you? she cried as she reached the port side hull. His answer was to grab her by the wrist and haul her with him out onto the ladder, where they hiked out doing a dangerous balancing act, adding weight to the ship. He extended the ladder another six inches and the starboard hull began rearing out of the water, clearing the tightening net noose. So instead of just hanging off the outrigger, he used a ladder to send their weight way over the side of the boat. Which is more believable. It's more based in physics. They're extending the length of the lever. 
instead of shifting the weight on a set size of beam. Right. So instead of sitting at the very tippy end of the seesaw, they have extended the seesaw and are then sitting at the very tippy end of the seesaw. Exactly. And that is what they do on either side of the boat. Now, as we go from one outrigger to the other here in the movie, Anola hitches a ride with the Mariner as he swings out on a rope from one side to the other. And as he's swinging, the Mariner commands Helen to go to the helm and get the centerboard. Now, time for us to brush up on our nautical terminology, because a centerboard is a retractable keel which pivots out of a slot in the hull of a sailboat known as either a centerboard trunk or a centerboard case, depending on if you're in the UK or the US. The retractability allows the centerboard to be raised to operate in shallow waters, to move the center of lateral resistance, to reduce drag when the full area of the centerboard is not needed, or when removing the boat from the water as when trailering. The centerboard was invented by an officer of the British Royal Navy named Lieutenant John Shank, He's credited with the invention, however, Shank gave credit for the idea to a British brigadier general named Earl Percy. So the Mariner is telling Helen, hey, retract that centerboard, get it up out of the water so the net goes right under it. And Helen responds by asking, what centerboard? Right. She doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. She doesn't know the nautical term centerboard. She knew helm. She went to the helm. That's as far as she got. Mm -hmm. And... Even though they're arguing and yelling at each other here, I absolutely have to give them both credit for communicating. Right. Which has been my thing this whole time. The whole time that we have talked about this movie, my whole thing has been communication and the lack thereof. Well, they're communicating now. Yep. He's involving her in the process of escape. This whole interaction with her shouting about the centerboard, where exactly? I don't know what to do. It gets a chuckle from me, a sensible chuckle. What I like about that from Helen is the idea that it's okay to not know things. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to make mistakes. It's not okay to lie about it. It's not okay to pretend that you didn't or that you do know what's going on. You didn't make a mistake. That's what's not okay. Sometime in like elementary, middle school, there was a sign on the wall. So, you know, very teachery that was, you haven't failed until you stop trying. So I like that she says, I don't know what you're talking about. If you tell me what to do, I can do it, but I don't know what it is that you want. I need more details. Mm -hmm. So I really, really appreciated that. And he did. He yelled at her under the helm, pull the thingy, and she did. Yep. So great. The yelling worked. Hey, I need you to do a thing. I don't know what you're talking about. Here's what I'm talking about. It got done. It. I can't help but feel like it would have been useful instead of just shouting go to the helm, get the centerboard, because nothing is labeled in these vehicles. Right. You think back to the war rig, you think back to the black on black, nothing is ever clearly labeled, this switch does this, this button does that. No, of course not. If the Mariner had just shouted, under the helm, pull the handles, instead of get the centerboard, mm -hmm. probably would have done the same thing, maybe a little faster. Yeah, I, I think know. so. After Helen pulls the handles, he does yell, like, it's too late, come over here. But yeah. wait, but she did the thing she was supposed to do, right? Yeah, she pulled but the handles. But then he said, it's too late, never mind, come over here and do this thing with me. 
So I was a little bit confused about that, but whether or not she actually accomplished the thing, the thing she was supposed to, because I thought she did. Yeah. It's possible that by her pulling those handles like she did, she took care of the center board, but he probably didn't see it because he's halfway across the ship. Right. He's very distracted. So the instance here is stop messing around with the helm. We need to get over here to pull the other end out of the water. Yeah. Yeah. But it's by far the best teamwork we've seen out of them. Oh, absolutely. In this movie. And they cut it really close. Oh, with they that do. Net. Because as the other rigger pulls out of the water, we can see that the net is caught on either the keel part that's coming down from that outrigger or another part of it. But it's pulling and it's straining. And they don't break free from it initially, but it does snap on that sharpened blade coming out of the outrigger, which is extremely lucky on their end. Yeah, it snags long enough to create some tension, but not long enough to actually worry us. Thought it was a nice touch. Yeah. Story-wise, they could have just cleared it, no problem, and it would have been fine. That would have been fine, too. But adding that little touch of, oh, no, it snagged on something. And there's really just a few moments of, is this going to cause a problem is it not? It was a nice touch. Plus, when the net snaps, we get to see it whip back at the smokers, take a couple of them right off of their jet skis, and devolve the rest of them into a Three Stooges send-up. Oh, yeah, very Three Stooges. Of confusion and them crashing into each other and getting caught on their own net. Right. The like, Deacon. they get clotheslined. It's... A mess. The deacon is so frustrated. He does the classic maneuver of raising his fists in frustration and shouting no. It's excellent. One thing that I like about the deacon, especially in this moment, when he's been foiled, is that his reaction is not violent. You can think of maybe a typical movie villain where they don't get their way and their reaction to that is to hurt somebody, or destroy something. The first one that comes to mind as an example is in the movie Anastasia, Rasputin. Mm -hmm. When things don't go his way, he'll destroy things around him. And it's quite comical the way that it's played by Christopher Lloyd. It's a fantastic role. But it makes people around him nervous. Yeah. That they're going to be too close to him when something goes wrong. So... The deacon here, he's got the Nord literally right next to him. They are shoulder to shoulder. So if he wanted to be violent in his frustration, there is no lack of targets. But he doesn't. He's not that kind of villain. Yeah, he's just not that kind of guy. Which I appreciate. There is additional trouble in the book that befalls the Trimoran right around this time. Helen has gone below deck to take care of the center board, but the Mariner calls her back to get to the starboard side, and the book continues. As he did, he caught sight of a berserker on a jet ski, not part of the dragnet team. Bearing in on the prow, he was reaching for the girl who was goggle-eyed with fright. Duck, the mariner yelled. She did, and still leaning out to snatch her, the berserker slammed into the trimaran's prow at full speed, shattering a forward crossarm and vanishing beneath the boat and the water without so much as a whimper. Skipping forward to where the Mariner returns to the helm, jumping back into his cockpit, he kicked open a hatch that would give him the raw speed he needed now. A pedal was revealed, and he slammed his foot on it, firing the foredeck air mortar, 
His emergency ace in the hole went rocketing over the head of the startled child on the hull. What? The woman said, looking up after the comet he'd fired. She was beside him again, he noted. Spinnaker, he said. The triangular box kite head sail, like a star in the daytime sky, gave them just the burst they needed. The smokers were suddenly far behind them. The battle was over. This spinnaker is probably one of my favorite features of the Trimoran because it is so unexpected. At this point in the movie, I feel like we'd seen all of the tricks Mm -hmm. that this boat had to offer. I feel like as a character, this boat has been shown to us. But typically, like a character, something new can be shown at any time. And it's not uncommon for a character to come out with a trait we didn't know they had late in the movie when it's absolutely necessary. So if you're looking at this boat like a character, which we tend to do in our movies to give character traits to the vehicle, this is absolutely in line with good storytelling. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't entirely believe that the mortar that we see pop out of the deck and fire could necessarily hold all of the structure needed to inflate a kite like this because it is very boxy looking. There seems to be some structure to it, more so than a regular spinnaker. But the image of it popping out, firing, and then unfurling in the wind is quite excellent. Ducking back into our nautical terminology... A spinnaker is a sail designed specifically for sailing off the wind from a reaching course to a downwind, i.e. with the wind 90 or 180 degrees off the bow. The spinnaker fills with wind and balloons out in front of the boat when it is deployed, called flying. It is constructed of lightweight fabric, usually nylon, and is often brightly colored. It may be optimized for a particular range of wind angles as either a reaching or a running spinnaker by the shaping of the panels and seams. The spinnaker is often called a kite or a chute, as in a cruising chute, because it somewhat resembles a parachute in both construction and appearance. This should not be confused with the spinnaker chute, which is a hull fitting sometimes used for launching and recovering the spinnaker. A purported entomology has the first boat to carry this sail being a crow's yacht named Sphinx, from which Sphinx's acre was eventually turned into spinnaker. Okay. This is one of the iconic sails. Like when people think of sailboats, this is the sail they think of, is the spinnaker. Because it's the big one that's brightly colored. Yeah. And it's been translated in a very interesting way. It's less a spinnaker, certainly not a classic spinnaker, and more a kite. It reminds me of kite sailing. You might see people on a wakeboard out on the water with two handles up to a large kite in the sky, or maybe they are on land on a sort of wheeled cart being pulled along by the wind. But that's what I imagine when I look at this. Yeah, that's quite reasonable. And this certainly serves the same purpose as a spinnaker, that it is intentionally catching a certain type of wind, and it is meant for speed. Mm -hmm. And I guess the mariner is very lucky that it's the right wind. Yeah. (laughs) for this spinnaker to pull them away in the right direction. You can see on his face him checking the direction of the wind before he deploys this thing. He's looking around at everything because if he needed to adjust his heading based on which way the wind was going, you know that he would turn that boat 
before deploying this thing. Yeah, because there are many directions he could go to get away from them that would work. <laughs> Almost 360 degrees of options. Yes. Now, I just noticed something. I just want to review the footage. It does even kind of look that once the spinnaker is released, we then switch to a front side view, and it does look like the boat is turning a bit. So it wasn't all movie perfect that he was going in the right direction for the wind. The spinnaker did pull him a bit. Mm -hmm. So the deacon, in his frustration, tells one of his underlings to give him a rifle. I love the move where he licks the tip of his thumb and then swipes it across the gun for luck. And he says, boy, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. And he takes aim and he fires a single shot at the mariner and the bullet punches right through the mariner's torso. We can see its lower abdomen. And as the deacon says, I winged him. It's fairly obvious to me that it's not a fatal shot, but is it enough of a shot that it is going to bleed and it is going to hurt? Yeah, it is. It's a pretty nasty shot. I think it could definitely kill him. Oh, if it gets infected, sure. Yeah. In fact, the things that we see him do, especially, I think, next week and into the week after, I just kind of find it hard to believe with his level of injury that he's up and moving around so much. That he's able to brush it off. Yeah, because <laughs> it's... His abdomen, which it's got to hurt to use all those muscles. And uh, whew, I don't know. I think he brushes it off a little bit too much because this is a nasty shot. Yeah. As I said before, it's incredibly lucky that it didn't hit anything vital. And it's only muscular damage instead of something that could rupture inside of him. I want to duck back into the boat. You may remember that I mentioned a berserker that hit the side of the boat and seemed to disappear. So, after the deployment of the spinnaker, the smokers were suddenly far behind them, the battle was over. Then a spear burst through the mariner's shoulder in a bloody blast of immediate agony. He whipped his head toward the source of the pain and saw him, the berserker who had rammed into the prow. The bastard was under the ship, clinging to the deck netting as if it were a wire mesh cage, half in the water, half out, and on his ugly head... He wore a two-shot mounted spear gun helmet. That it was a silly-looking thing made it no less deadly, and certainly didn't take the sting out of the small spear that had torn through the mariner's shoulder. And there was one shot left on that helmet rig. With his unwounded arm, the mariner grabbed a harpoon from a cockpit scabbard, lifted it high, and jammed it straight down into the berserker and through the bastard and his spine. Oh my goodness! The berserker dropped away. A moment of frothy red foam announced his departure on the water surface. Keep this course, he told the woman, and staggered off to try to remove the damn spear. On the stern hull, he collapsed, passing out, his blood trickling down into the water as the trimaran skimmed away. As cool as the deacon is for making this shot, the book, I think, is better. It's more personal, like up close and personal. And from a surprise direction, and it's good. I give the book credit for having an interesting premise. The idea of a spear gun on a helmet that a smoker can use seemingly hands-free to attack his enemy. And that being what wounds the Mariner. It's 
a bit out there. It is. For sure. But we've seen weird stuff before in Mad Max. It's very true. The wrist-mounted crossbow, little mini crossbow. Like, yeah, that's immediately what I thought of. I actually prefer the movie version because I like seeing the Deacon exhibit how capable he is, not only as a strategist and a leader, but as a warrior. He's got very good accuracy when it comes to aimed shots, something that his other smokers do not possess. And so it's another way that we see that, yeah, he's in charge because he's better than everybody. Yeah, I do really appreciate that. There are things about both versions that I really, really like. And if they had found a way to include both things in some way, I would have liked it both to show up in the movie, too. It would have been very interesting if they had the Berserker hit the boat and come back later firing spears out of his hat, but maybe have him fire one spear and the spear misses. So the Mariner sees this Berserker and says, oh, I've got to take care of this guy. And as he stabs at the Berserker to kill him and thinks, ah, yes, I've killed him. He is gone. Then he is suddenly shot because we are so focused on the battle between the Mariner and this crossbow-hatted berserker that we forget about the deacon up on the trading post. Yeah, I really like that, because as is, the Mariner and Enola and Helen think they've gotten away. Mm -hmm. And so it's not necessarily a moment of peace, but it is a moment coming down from the high, and then they shoot right back up. Yeah, I think it's very well done either way. Yeah, I agree. And so... The Trimoran continues sailing away, and we stick with the Deacon and the Nord for a bit. The Nord wants to load all of the gas that they have into one boat and then run the Trimoran down. The Deacon is not on board with that plan. According to him, you can't catch him with ten boats, and you want to send just one. Well, I pray that you're joking. And as he looks through the spyglass, he notices that there is indeed a trickle of blood leading from the Mariner down into the water. And so the Deacon says, bring me the trackers, meaning sharks. So not remembering what happens with this next, do they have trained sharks that are trained to track blood and lead them there? The Raider script has a lot of sharks. This movie, we get two fins sticking out of the water and that's it. But in the Raider script, there are sharks on leashes that are hauled around with the pirates that they unleash on their enemies in multiple different instances of the story. Oh my goodness. And it's something that is sorely missed here in the main movie. I think so. Because if you have sharks, you use the sharks. Not that they're necessarily going to be as cool as something with a laser beam on its head, but it's going to be a whole lot more effective than ornery sea bass. Am I going to be disappointed in the resolution of this statement? Oh, yes. Okay. It's going to be very lackluster. Okay. But we'll see that in upcoming minutes. Yep. So as we put a pin in things for this week, come back next time when Helen will confront the Mariner about his intentions to sell her to slavers. The Mariner will demand to know what makes Enola's tattoo so important, and the two of them will just keep arguing about dry land. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. 
Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 53. We'll see you next time.